Tonight's passage is from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. So, for the last time, please follow along as I read. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Alright, seriously, alright. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. By the way, that happened when I preached on Easter. That was really awesome. Um, so, hey, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, just want to say a quick word, um, and I'll introduce myself and do our normal welcome. But I did want to kind of mention that this is our last large group. Um, it's the last of the spring semester, uh, but it's also the last official large group for several of us here, uh, for our seniors who are here, who've graciously given us some time out of their schedules to be with us, and also um, for me. So this is my last RUF large group at Davidson. It's my last RUF large group at all. Um, Hopefully I'll be invited back, but uh, (laughs) we'll see. So before I say my usual intro welcome, I just want to say a couple of related thank yous. Uh, First, thank you to the seniors here. Um, I do just want to say thank you for taking the time out of a really busy season for you especially Um, and all the other times I just want to say thank you for joining with us being with us hanging out um, the way you've loved RUF in the past four years we're really grateful and we have a gift in the back um, if you haven't so availed yourself Um, it's a book not shocking Um, secondly I just want to thank the students and the staff um, a lot of you have quietly served behind the scenes um, for a long time. Uh, if you just are, if you've done servant team or ministry or you're an intern, can you just briefly raise your hand? Um, just, just want to say thank you to you all. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the seniors and you all coming together. Uh, I'm really grateful uh, for the servant leadership you all have shown. So thank you. 
Uh, if those of you don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. Uh, I'd love to meet you. If this is your first one, you just came to the last <laughs> large group. <laughs> uh, I'm a campus minister for RUF, still Reform University Fellowship uh, at Davidson College, and it exists to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever you are. And we want to take that very seriously, uh, the wherever you are part and whoever you are part. Um, we don't want to be a ministry that just serves one kind of person. We want to serve every kind of person, and we want to be a place where anyone can come from any place on the campus, uh, any personal background, uh, any spiritual space even, wherever you are with Christianity, whether you're, wherever you are with Jesus, we hope you feel welcomed, um, and we mean that. And um, also just uh, thanks for coming. Uh, that's all to say that. So we're glad you're here, and we're going we're gonna to get going on our series here. Um, this semester in large group... Uh, what we're doing now, we've been looking at the biblical book of Isaiah and the topic of who God is. As a brief re- reminder, we've been looking at Isaiah this semester uh, for a few reasons. This whole idea of who is God for a few reasons. First, Isaiah's visions of God are just stunning. Every passage paints this like a masterpiece. Uh, Isaiah's prophecies show and tell us God vividly. They make us ask these helpful questions, a helpful question like, Are we sure we know who God really is? Uh, And I hope, even in this passage in Isaiah 65, that you'll take the uh, version of God that you you brought into this room, and you'll compare and contrast with that God that you see in this passage. Second, this series that we're looking at Isaiah is my most autobiographical. It comes out of my year. Honestly, uh, a year that's learning to wait um, with patience for God to show up, for his presence, for his work. Uh, in my life, and that's often been in the midst of a lot of pain, um, a lot of fear, and a lot of excitement. And what I've really loved about doing this series is that I share that with a lot of you. A lot of you, most of you in this room, if not all of you in this room, have felt that too, um, in different ways, in different spaces, but I'm really thankful that this this series has spoken to you and I've gotten that feedback. Um, and so we're really turning to the book of Isaiah when we don't know what God is doing in order to know who God is. We're going to trace the character uh, at a heart level of who God is when we don't exactly, aren't exactly able to trace his hand at work in the world. So in Isaiah, we've done that. We've traced God's character. And just, again, this is just my own pat on the back here, but this is where we've gone in terms of uh, what would be called the attributes of God in my own words. Uh, We've traced God's nearness and his bigness, God's holiness, his trustworthiness. God is the object of our hope, God's patience, God's power. God's gentleness, God's happiness, God's freedom, God's bearing of our sin, God as inviting. And then finally, tonight, lastly, Isaiah 65, we're going to look at God as a perfectionist. He's the perfectionist. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. And that's a pat on the back for all of us who've been here over the course of time. It's really been cool uh, to study this with you. But before we look more at God this way, I'm going to pray um, and compose myself because there's a lot going on inside. Uh, So would you pray with me? Father, I'm sure there's a lot going on inside of a lot of people. Um, Papers, uh, graduation, uh, far off for some, uh, really near for others. Um, Just savoring the moment or feeling anywhere but the moment. And I pray that you'd meet us that she'd meet us in this present, in this room, that always has some sort of background noise in it. Um, And I pray that you would just be um, with these students, 
And I pray that you'd use these words and that once again, like you've done for a decade, that you would meet us through your words and that you'd use me, a crooked stick, to draw a straight line. And we ask these things in Jesus' name uh, and for his sake, that he might be lifted up in the eyes of our hearts, more believable and beautiful to us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So in a book that's kind of I've been reading that is about learning to, to look more deeply at the world, this author, Ken uh, Geyer, writes about a famous painting. It's called uh, Girl at the Mirror by Norman Rockwell. And I'm actually going to use, because I can, we're just going to put this up so you can see it. Um, boom. Okay. Sort of famous. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't seen it. But I'm going to describe it a little bit for you. I think it helps. Um, listening to, reading him do it helped me a lot. It's an image of a girl looking into a mirror propped against a chair in what looks like a dark attic. She's barefoot and she's only wearing a dress slip. Um, on her lap is a magazine open to an image of a beautiful old actress, um, famous movie actress named Jane Russell. To the side of the girl lies a tossed doll, an opened lipstick, a brush, a comb, and what looks like a handheld mirror or makeup case or makeup powder case. But what draws our eyes and our hearts to this is the girl, and it's really her hands and her face. Listen to the way that Ken Geyer describes these. There's something about this girl, this girl whose arms are curled inward like petals of a flower. She's somewhere between bud and blossom, somewhere between her last doll and her first date, somewhere between dressing up and growing up. And there's something sad about that. Something of that sadness is in her face, in her eyes. Can you see it? There's also something of shyness. And there are quiet, unspoken fears coming from those dark eyes that, make, that seem to make the attic even darker. According to Geyer, this girl is at a threshold in her life, a transition point. It's a threshold she'll have to cross, but she's, unhe- she's hesitant. She's unsure about how to cross it. She's wondering what lies ahead, wondering what besides the doll she'll have to leave behind. She's wondering what it'll be like as a grown-up, if she'll be accepted in that world. She's wondering how she'll turn out. She's wondering how and what she'll look like. And all of us can relate to these wanderings, right? We felt them achingly and often fearfully in adolescence, uh, in the tween years. We've also felt them maybe at the beginning of college when you got accepted, but you weren't here yet. Or between semesters or school years that felt like a lifetime. And of course, we can feel them now at the end of a semester, thinking about the summer um, or thinking about our changing relationships or thinking about graduation. Uh, And we have this moment when the busyness stalls out just enough that it lets us think and lets us catch up with ourselves. Um, And in my transition, I feel this. And that's part of why I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Again, a decade of college ministry, and I'm now about to lead a church. And I imagine that the seniors also feel this, and that's part of why I want to talk about this as well. Um, There's this feel of this push forward and a simultaneous pull backwards about graduation. And whether the future is this this place to live and this job to work in this community that feels well-paved and it has been paved uh, with solid bricks since August... (laughs) Or maybe you're still um, trying to figure out and discover what the future is going to be for you. Um, we all are in, this, in a similar place. And really, it's the same place as the original audience in Isaiah 65. 
they likely felt the same fears and longings Isaiah prophetically wrote to the first returnees of Babylonian exile. He wrote before that time to them. And they are in a transition period on a threshold from captivity to freedom, from foreign Babylon to the original homeland of Jerusalem and Judah. And they were so excited about this restored future's many possibilities, right? But they were also fearful and frustrated. They were felt weak and they felt left behind and left out. And so in Isaiah 65, God responds to the push-pull of fear and excitement that the ancient Israelites felt and that we feel even now about transitions. And God meets us in our questions and the many emotions that come with this territory by describing a very certain future. Isn't that interesting that he chooses to do that? This is because what you believe about the future affects how you live in the present. What you believe about the future affects how you live in the present. And the same future that Isaiah points to is so profoundly satisfying. It's so good that in the words of Raymond Ortland, if you can see that future, you can, you can face anything in the present. So in a sentence, Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 are saying this reassuring truth. God is a perfectionist. And therefore, he will give us what we long for, and he will complete the good works we began. So God is a perfectionist, and he's going to give us what we long for. That's the promise in this passage. And he's going to complete the good works that we're beginning. So God's righteous perfectionism, his satisfaction of our emotional needs, his completion of our relationships and work in this world are seen in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, I'd like to begin there by just like seeing it. This is a little different than my normal sermon because, you know, I had to change it up for my last sermon. I don't know why. Um, And then we're going to move to the final two points of applying these truths to ourselves and to our situation. So the outline on your handout reflects the intention in three steps, uh, three points. Can't change that up. So first, verses 17 through 25, we're going to look at the whole passage. We're going to see that God's perfectionism and our satisfaction and life's completion are all there. And they're all wrapped up together. And I'm going to call this point the proof of God's perfectionism. Second, we're going to look at verses 19, 20, 22, and 25. And we're going to see our imperfect rest in God's perfectionism. That's what we're being called to. Then third, we're going to be called to a third thing, verses 21 through 25, that our good work is enough. Our work is good enough in God's perfection and his perfectionism. So we're going to begin at the beginning as usual, but it's going to be a little bit of a quicker survey, so don't be thrown off. Um, and we're going to discuss God's righteous perfectionism and what it does for us. What are the results? What's the takeaway? So if you look with me uh, from the very beginning of the passage, we know that God is a perfectionist because of what he promises to personally do throughout this passage. Just look at the first two verses with me, right? For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Without knowledge of like much of the the, the details that we're going to talk about on the new heavens, new earth, we know that God and God alone will create these details. He's like that perfectionistic group partner that you have. You know, maybe you are that one who takes the whole project because she knows she'll do it better than everyone else combined. 
and she actually pulls it off and does better than everyone else combined. Okay, God is like almost every one of us in this room that have had that moment of perfectionistic tendency where we restart the paper from scratch, right? Where we take the problem or relationship completely apart to put them back together again, and we go from the top, we go from line one, we put a whole new canvas out and we start again. Because we are so dissatisfied with the way the former things went, the way they turned out. But here's the thing, against all odds and all time, God's final product, just like sometimes our final product, is our best work, despite the restart. God is reworking the mixed results of our hands and of our words and of our lives, as only God can rework them. He's making us and our world brand new at their best. And when we wade into the details of this brand new, at its best, new heavens, new earth, we can just, we can see just how he's doing this. God's recreation will move, remove every bad imperfection. He's going to remove every bad imperfection, and it's going to complete every good imperfection. So he's going to remove every bad imperfection and complete every good imperfection. So we're going to look first at the way that God extracts the bad and the sad from this world. In verses 19 through 20, God eliminates every reason and every sound for weeping. For instance, there are no more infants that die in childhood. There are no more older men and older women who die at all. In fact, there are, whether you're young or old, no one is going to die. There will be no more death in the new heavens and new earth. Verse 25 adds to the fact that there is no more death by telling us that there will be no more agents of pain that hurt or agents of destruction that destroy. There's no more predators in nature and no more natural disasters. God will rework the entire world around us to include absolutely no negative experiences for us. According to verse 20, there will be no bad imperfections of the curse for those who believe in God's will to be done before their own. Second, God's will, God will perfect the imperfect goods that already exist. He's going to perfect the imperfect goods that already exist. In verses 21 through 23, God promises permanence and enjoyment in our home lives, our houses. And he promises permanence and enjoyment in our work lives, what the passage calls vineyards. There will be no estate sales from people dying. There's going to be no moving, no changing or signing of leases, no evictions. There will be no unfair markets, no extortion, no need to buy or sell anything. God will transform our restlessness into rest, our transience into rootedness, our professional fear of missing out into vocational contentment. And this very physical contentment and rest and rootedness will be perfectly complemented by a very spiritual and emotional intimacy and satisfaction. Listen to the way that verses 23 through 24 put it. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I, the Lord God, will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And so God promises to complete every spiritual, every physical, every emotional good to those who love him and those he loves. In sum, case concluded, God is a perfectionist. <laughs> he is a perfectionist because he will perfectly remake everything, including us. 
brimming with always intended delights, the whole cosmos from the quark level to the event horizon, from the flitting thought to the bustling city, all will be filled with joy, verse 18, life, verse 20, security, verse 21, reward, verse 22, intimacy, verses 23 through 24, and peace, verse 25. And really, the chorus to a Mumford and Sons song really captures this beautifully, that song after the storm. And this is how the chorus goes. But there will come a time, you'll see, with no more tears. And love will not break your heart, but, dis- but dismiss your fears. Get over your hill and see what you find there with grace in your heart and flowers in your hair. And so Isaiah and these lyrics invite us to direct our present tense frustrations and future fears into towards this good is done reality of the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, the very same reality <coughs> promised at the end of the Bible, at the end of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelations, and begun in earnest by Jesus's resurrection victory over death and all the former things of this world. It's on the move. So here's the thing. While God's perfectionism produces a perfectly delightful world out of our existing one, our perfectionism often produces much more mixed results, right? For instance, our inability to stop working on something until it's perfect probably got us into Davidson. I'm just going gonna, gonna to go ahead and put that on the, the table, um, speaking as an alum. But it also has some major downsides, Okay. For instance, my inability to stop working on a conversation or, say, this sermon often makes me very late. I was five minutes late to this meeting, last meeting. And that same nitpicking can often ruin a good enough result. Uh, What comes to mind for me is this mongoose that I drew that was nearly perfect in middle school. Don't ask me why or where. Social studies, that's an all-encompassing category. And um, this mongoose I ruined because I nitpicked and didn't think it was quite good enough. I remember that moment in the car with that crumpled picture. My perfectionism can also prevent me not just from stopping something when it needs to be stopped, but from starting something that needs to be begun, especially if it's a less comfortable project. If you took a tour of my home right now, you'd see many unbegun home improvements. Uh, as we speak, William's, one of William's closet doors has no handle on it. Uh, and it's been that way for over a week, maybe close to several. Um, <laughs> but God's perfectionism for us in our world knows when to start, and his perfection knows when to stop. And yet, here's the question, how do we rest in God's perfectionism in the midst of all the present tense frustrations that we feel? I mean, it could feel like we're waiting on God to start this project of New Jerusalem, can't it, right? When are you going to begin? When is it going to come in earnest? I mean, how does God's perfectionism allow us not to be perfectionists? To not should all over ourselves. To not should all over this world. I'd like to explore these questions, and we're already in it, in the second point. Our rest in God's perfectionism. And look, I really appreciate how these verses that I've listed off, 19, 20, 22, and 25, they all don't sugarcoat the reality we live in. And it can feel awful. The world is wet with our pain-induced tears. But just today, they had a shooting at UNCC, right? Babies die hourly. We lose parents and grandparents to death in what feels like a regularity or clockwork. 
homes and jobs and money are regularly taken unfairly. And there's a killer natural disaster in every news cycle. Simply put, we live in a world of imperfections and they're evil. And chief among those evils is this world of death. It's a world with death. These many evils like death build towards the kind of restlessness that we all quietly feel, right? All of it, the homes, the vineyards, the, shirt, the children, the grandparents, they can all be taken from us at any point at any time. Death, if we stop to think about it, terrifies us. So naturally, our strategy is to never stop and think about it. That's a major reason many of us never stop at all. So we don't want to think about negativity. In the words of Anne Lamott, I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. The truth is that you will die anyway, and that a lot of people who aren't looking at their feet are going to do a whole lot better than you and have a lot more fun while they're doing it. But what if we can't out-careful a careless world? This past summer, cancer forced me to stop and think about death. And I'll be honest, I was terrified. One minute I lived this carefully planned, fully efficient world. And the next minute I was spinning scared. Scared that um, if God could allow me to have cancer, what else would he allow? What was next? And how come my job ministry performance card didn't do anything? How come the way I ran didn't matter? During my CT scans to figure out whether the cancer spread from my eye to anywhere else in my body, I thought, what's next? Am I gonna die? What about my wife and children? Will I keep my house? Will they keep the house? Where will they move? And I was comforted by a letter from another pastor who had experienced cancer. And he wrote this letter, and this letter began uh, to help me to meditate on Psalm 84. It was his suggestion. Um, and so um, during the most difficult and painful and dark places in radiation, I thought about Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, the Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out. They sing for joy to the living God. And I thought to myself, God is my home. This isn't. God is my rest. God is my home. And really, this pastor, Jack Miller, in that letter quotes St. Augustine, a theologian, who writes this. If you have a house of your own, you're poor. If you have the house of God, you're rich. In your own house, you will fear thieves. In God's house, God himself is the wall. Blessed then are those who dwell in your house, God. They possess the heavenly Jerusalem without distress, without pressure, without diverse and divided boundaries. All possess it, and each singly possesses the whole. In other words, if you've made your home and your rest and anything in this world, 
you are always about to be plunged upon wave upon wave of insecurities and fears and losses. But in the words of Jack Miller, make God your dwelling place and you have an unlosable treasure and a deeper kind of happiness. And look, cancer's taught me, and I'm still learning, that because of what Jesus did outside of me and what he did for me 2,000 years ago on a cross, God is the only rest and only comfort I can't lose. I can't live life perfect enough to avoid pain and suffering, and neither can you. But praying to Jesus, reading about Jesus, hearing about and from Jesus, is possessing the heavenly Jerusalem without distress, without pressure, without divided boundaries. And my perfectionism, the reason I can't stop or start, the reason this sermon started days late and took way too long to write, my perfectionism is actually able to rest in Jesus' perfectionism for me. His perfectly good life, his perfectly selfless death, and his perfect promise to make all things new. And the more I look to Jesus for my identity, the more I look for my comfort to Jesus, the more I look for my security, all of these things meaning what I think we're getting at with home, the more I'm freed, the more I'm freed to live an imperfect, enjoyable, stop-and-go life. Do you see that? Putting my home with Jesus makes me able to be free. All in a world that is very much a work in progress. But really, God's perfectionism doesn't just mean that we're supposed to rest and we're supposed to wait and do nothing. God's perfectionism calls us to actually do something. But what and how are we supposed to do? In the first half of the 20th century, this um, intellectual and writer named H.G. Wells looked at this imperfect world, and he really rightly wanted to do something about it. And so he began to write. He became a perfectionist if he already wasn't one. And first, in the years before World War II, H.G. Wells wrote this of humankind. Can we doubt that presently our human race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace and garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state form, but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Do you hear that? Like, Wells is positive. He's certain that humankind, he and we, are going to make a perfect world. But several years later, during World War II, the same H.G. Wells writes this, Homo sapiens, as he has been, Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. So you notice that like Wells' idealism is still absolute. His perfectionism is still in play, but he goes from extreme optimism to extreme pessimism. Humankind went from able to perfect the entire world to being unable to even maintain it. And so we once again see the two sides that are opposing each other but are related of perfectionism. The same perfectionism that makes it hard to stop sometimes, but also makes it hard to start other things sometimes, that same perfectionism makes us both overestimate and underestimate our world impact. You see, we're both overestimating and underestimating our ability to work all of the time. 
And once again, we see this in the striking difference between God's perfectionism and our perfectionism. God's perfectionism is matched by his perfect ability to do whatever he wishes. Our, in, our perfectionism is matched by our imperfect ability to do whatever we wish. Our wills are imperfect morally, and our wills are imperfect in power. As World War II showed H.G. Wells and the rest of the watching world, by its heinous evil and by the difficulty to get peace. So then how do we treat our fears for the future, right? How do we work with a vision for things changing for the better without seesawing between pride and despair based on our own abilities? How does God perfect, how does God's perfect new heavens and new earth motivate us towards good works or good enough work? How does it motivate us towards proximate, that is close enough work? How does it motivate us towards provisional, that is for the time being work? How does, it, how does it motivate us towards all of those things held together with the virtues of justice and peace and delight and beauty? I think this is the third point we're getting at as we kind of investigate these questions. We're already well into it, and it's going to be our good work in the midst of God's perfectionism. And look, maybe we've talked about this a bunch and you didn't really catch it the first time or the second time, but I'm going to say it again. Did you notice that the new heavens, new earth is filled with human stuff? It's filled with stuff. It's not a land made out of ethereal cotton balls. Okay, it's not flickering with angelic holograms. Okay, it's a city with homes in it, vineyards and families. It's these human products are both the same, they're physical, they're recognizable, they're human made, they're human built, they're human planted, they're human connected, but they're also way different in that world than this. The homes and the fields possessed are possessed and lived in forever. They're enjoyed in a uniquely rewarding way. In the words of verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. This means our communities in the present tense, our work are somehow mysteriously connected and completed in the new heavens and the new earth. Our labors here on earth will be fruitful and savior, savored there. Our community will at last be in complete harmony and feel comfortable. How great will it be to be in relationships that feel comfortable all the time? And this belief about the future affects how we live in the present. And I'm going to give you one last example of that. And I'm going to help you think about what it means to be a good enough doctor. Okay, look, for some of you, this is all too real, not a thought experiment. This is the field you're going into, medicine. Um, but up, and for others of you, I know, I get it, I'm a pastor, right? Let's not forget that. For the rest of us, medicine offers a helpful case study, right? It involves this balance of relationships and involves this balance of people and labor. And so we, according to Paul Kalanithi, both are supremely important, right? Kalanithi, a neurosurgeon, writes, technical excellence is a moral requirement. Life and death, tragedy and triumph depend on one or two millimeters in his world. And the doctor's relationships can be highly charged by the threat to life and identity in the practice of medicine. There's a mandate to learn what a patient thinks makes life worth living, 
And this power grants the doctor a deep responsibility, sharing in guilt and blame. But not only are our doctor's work and relationships important, they're often filled with failure, especially in the more intense medical fields. Listen to the way that Paul Kalanithi puts it. Our patients' lives and identities may be in our hands, yet death always wins. Even if you're perfect, the world isn't. The secret is to know the deck is stacked, that you will lose, that your hands or your judgment will slip, and yet still struggle to win for your patients. You can't reach perfection, but you can believe in an asymptote towards which you are ceaselessly striving. Okay, aside from the ceaselessly part, it kind of bothers me, I like the realistic balance of hope and honesty that he has here, right? Okay, you can keep, you can keep that up if you want. In doctoring, like any other work or any other relationship, there's going to be failure, right, in this world. The world and we are imperfect, but the presence of imperfections, even as evil as death, these imperfections do not stop us from fighting for the good enough. The good enough will save lives. The good enough will heal hurts. The good enough will move for justice. The good enough will maintain peace. The good enough gestures like a geometric asymptote toward a perfectly straight line that the new heavens and the new earth will draw. So look, no matter how old we are, thinking these thoughts, you and I probably likely feel, once again, like that preteen girl in that dress slip whose arms are curled inward like petals of flower, somewhere between a bud and a blossom, somewhere between dressing up and growing up, right? When we kind of feel the weight of this. Look, change is really hard. The future is fraught with feelings of failure. And we look gangly and awkward to ourselves all of the time. But I want you to hear this. Behold, our God is speaking deeply into our fears of failure. You know what he's saying? I create new heavens and new earth. No more shall be heard of it, the sound of weeping. Before you call, I will answer. While you are yet speaking, I will hear. And God is hunkering down into a kneel, and his gentle arm is draped around our shoulders. Shoulders stooped by present-day frustrations with the world, but also with ourselves. And you know what God is doing? He's whispering words of rest. Words that remind us, like I was reminded this summer, of what home, where home really is. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us from this passage um, that can feel remote in a time like this, but are so precious. And so precious as we go forward in life, even if it feels like we're just standing still. And I pray that you'd meet us with these words and that you'd comfort us because we're more like the girl in the mirror than we want to admit. And I pray that you deal with us as we are because there's no way we can deal with you as we should be. Jesus, be merciful and kind as you are. Remind us that we're at home in you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.